Welcome to the Thinkers and Doers podcast, where we hear from some of the leading thinkers and doers shaping the world around us. I am your host, Luke Graham, and today I have the privilege of speaking with entrepreneur, data scientist, and academic Professor Paul X. McCarthy. Today, Paul and I discuss his recent paper called The Science of Startups, The Impact of Founder Personalities on Company Success, which he co-authored alongside Jean Gong, Fabian Stephanie, Fabian Braisman, Manan Andre Rajoui, and Margaret Kern. We talk about the six entrepreneurial personality types within their research and how they can be predicted by social media activity. We also talk about how employees, athletes, and entrepreneurs differ and what personality combinations within teams most reliably predict entrepreneurial success. Paul McCarthy, co-author of The Science of Startups, The Impact on Founder Personalities on Company Success. Lovely to have you, Paul. Thanks, Luke. Um, first of all, what I wanted to ask you is what inspired this project and, and what are some of the, the key insights for you and your co-authors? Thanks, Luke. So I think um, the backstory to this project is... Um, I've been working in the research space for around the last 10 years in this area of computational social science. So looking at um, large scale data sets and trying to understand some of the questions in um, traditional social science domains such as economics, um, linguistics, psychology, history, and so on. Um, and about six years ago, while I was working at uh, Australia's science agency, CSIRO, we were working around this question of what makes for employability and particularly looking at um, graduate employability, um, people who, who leave um, university, that sort of transition to work um, and how can we kind of improve that? What can we learn about that? Because it's known that um, graduate employability and the, the time to finding a job after you leave university um, is a key um, success factor in terms of you know um, long-term career success and the overall labor market as well and one of the things so we'll we're exploring all the traditional um, things like skills qualifications um, what sort of you know fit you know and there's so much work done in uh, economics labor market economics around um, labour market fit in terms of skills and qualifications, experience, that sort of thing. Um, and we came up with this solution, which was around on-the-job experience uh, for students while they're working. But while this was all happening, um, in parallel, I was interested in this area of what role personality plays. Um, and that's sort of a totally different sort of trajectory, totally different sort of way of looking at things. Um, and we started to do a few experiments in this space and I was aware of the work um, that some other researchers around the world, um, in particular, um, Mikhail Kaczynski, um, who was at Stanford, who visited Australia um, during that time. And I met him in Melbourne. And I, I told him some of these initial experiments that we'd done where we'd looked at um, computer scientists um, on GitHub, some of the best computer scientists in the world. And we compared their personality features um, to those of famous tennis players. 
and the way we did this was using known science which is uh, you can uh, infer people's personality traits using language so linguistic personality inference has been around for some time and this is kind of not new this is established science and using machine learning and a, and a reasonable corpus of someone's uh, language whether it's you know letters they've written or resumes they've written or indeed social media um, you can infer with a great deal of accuracy their personality traits so we took this idea and we we looked at tennis players um, who are on social media quite active on social media so the world's best men and women tennis players and the world's best um, computer scientists and um, in the open source of space that is and we found something really amazing like I thought you know they're going to be sort of similar there's going to be some similarities in personality but the extent to which the people computer scientists were like one another and totally different to um, tennis players and vice versa it was just extraordinary I like I, when I first saw the results I thought we'd made some sort of mistake because I thought it's not possible um, and so that led us to kind of explore this idea further and we met with Mikhail when he was in Australia and he kindly introduced us to one of his colleagues um, a fellow um, American, um, Peggy Kerner, who's working at um, the University of Melbourne. She's one of the world's leaders in positive psychology and has worked with Seligman and others. Um, and we worked with Peggy for about three years on a project which explored this idea of the relationship between occupations and personality. And the results were published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in the US a few years ago. Uh, and for the first time, we showed that there's a really clear relationship between uh, the occupations or roles and personalities. And to some extent, you can see that people who are successful in a role share very uncannily similar personality combinations, these traits. And um, the literature previously, um, there's quite a bit about careers and personality, but it's pretty simple. You know, it's sort of like saying, if you're in sales, extroversion helps. There's quite a lot of literature about conscientiousness, sort of saying that all, you know, conscientiousness is a predictor of success in careers. And I think it's, you know, code for all employers like conscientious employees. Mm. Um, but the truth is actually much more interesting and, and fascinating than that. And the truth is that there's a, there's a job for everybody, you know, and if you're unconscientious um, and uh, disagreeable, there's a job for you. And it's probably at Google, you know? <laughs> um, so, so um, it turns out that, you know, um, scientists, uh, you know, disagreeable. And, and when you start to look into these things, you can understand why, you know, now, I think a medical specialist and you have to deliver news to your patients, whether it's good or bad, mm. you can't be a people, people pleaser. You know, you, you're not necessarily going to be the, the, the sort of personality that suits that role is not necessarily always one who's, you know, aiming to play. This doesn't mean you have to be, you know, difficult, but it, it's, it's kind of, you can understand why some of these professions suit certain roles. And we created this map. So the first kind of map of, um, 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 
about 3,000 jobs and we looked at the personalities of about 120,000 people in these roles and we created this kind of vocation compass map. And then subsequent to that, we've, we've sort of done lots of follow-on work and we've found that having a role that suits your personality explains around 25% of the variance in engagement. Right. So we looked at a, a range of other well-being factors, including happiness and so on. Um, and so um, so this is sort of the backstory, I guess, to this entrepreneurship piece. Then um, just over two years ago, we thought, well, what about entrepreneurship? Uh, and we, we met two um, uh, colleagues, Fabian Braceman and Fabian Stephanie, um, young researchers at the University of Oxford, who are working in the in the uh, entrepreneurial or trying to understand startups and um, and doing a lot of computational social science in this space and we thought you know what this is a really good combination here because we are also interested in startups and and uh, you know personally i've been involved in the startup world um, i'm currently um, co-founder of a startup and have had a number of other previous exits um, and so um so yeah, for the last couple of years, we've been trying to explore, well, how does personality play a role in, in, in startup success and using similar techniques? So we'll delve into it in more detail, but that's a rather long-winded answer to your question, Lou. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's great. And 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 going to this specific paper, um, what, what I found quite interesting is that from, from this massive collection of data that you and the team um, completed, uh, you, you came up with these six categories or, or maybe what I would refer to as archetypes um, for founders, uh, leader, accomplisher, operator, developer, fighter, and engineer. Um, what what kind of led you down the route of, of helping use the big five personality traits and, and their subcategories to, to create these archetypes or, or link them at least to, to previous literature? And... Um, and how does one differ to the other and, and and why do these exist for entrepreneurs yeah okay this is good these are good questions so the first point i guess by way of backstory for people not familiar with the personality literature mm. um there might might even be listeners who like myself not not many that many years ago are quite, are quite skeptical of this space <laughs> um so just a, a sort of a, a potted history of so over the last 20 years there's been a kind of revolution in psychology which is largely referred to as the positive psychology movement so rather than the last 100 years of psychology prior to that which was largely focused on people's difficulties and mm. um, problems mental mental problems they had Abnormal this sort of new movements yeah. are Exactly. Yeah. So focusing on what are the strengths that people have and what are the individual differences that are that are not um, to do with um, neuroses. Um, and, and part of that, uh, part of that has um, created this big five, which is um, five variables, um, different uh, features, domains, um, that you can characterize individual differences between people um, that are orthogonal to one another. So in other words, they're independent of one another um, and they're useful for measuring people's differences 
And the important thing is that these are, are highly predictive of a lot of life outcomes. So there's all sorts of schemas for personality and there's lots of different things, but big five has, is the most robust and certainly the most accepted in contemporary psychology. Mm. There's an enormous amount of research which backs it and shows that it's reliable and um, repeatable, that people's personalities don't change largely throughout their life, lifetime, um, including during traumatic events, um, once you mature and become an adult, there's kind of like this thing. We're also born with these things. It's really remarkable how young these, they, they sort of don't come fully formed, but tendencies to that kind of emerge and become personality through adolescence and so on. So it's really about who we are and how we like to engage with the world. I like to think about it in terms of it's kind of like an operating system where mm. we're kind of born with an operating system, it seems. Um, and it's just a preferred way of engaging with the world. There's no right or wrong to it, you know, and the, increasingly the literature around introverts is recognizing that there are, there's a lot of benefits to having sort of being, uh, uh, being an introvert versus being an extrovert. We, we sort of know what the benefits of being an extrovert are, but it's kind of, um, but I, I guess increasingly there's evidence to show that, um, being true to yourself or at least understanding, you know, the way that you like to engage with the world and are suited to engage with the world because not everybody, myself included, are, are that self-aware of these traits. And and I think that's where this idea of the alignment of what you do as for a career and your personality is really interesting because if it was self obvious if it was, you know, it was self-evident what our, what our personalities are, then then this wouldn't be a, a question, but I think for a lot of people, they're not even aware necessarily of the, this, these dimensions, mm. that they have certain traits and his predispositions and so on. And so, so that's sort of where we, where we started. And then um, moving on from the occupation work, I guess we were particularly interested in trying to understand our founders like employees and that was sort of the first question you know like our founders just basically a type of employee um, and it turns out they're not um, the first experiment we did we we looked at around 4,000 successful entrepreneurs from Crunchbase, which is the kind of definitive go-to um, data source, mm, open source originally, markets. but now proprietary, but mm. yeah, exactly, yeah. And they tracks global um, success of startup companies and their founders. There's about a million people, um, data on a million people in uh, Crunchbase. Not all of them are f uh, founders, so there's venture capitalists in there, there's... Um, you know, other, other advisors and so on. So we started with Crunchbase as a kind of sample. Um, we, we sliced and diced that in various ways. Um, and in this first study, we looked at 4,000 um, founders and co-founders of um, largely tech companies. So this, this study is largely around tech companies, but there's also tech, other, other companies in there, tech-enabled companies, you might say. Mm. Um, and then we, we created a contrafactual or a counter, counter group, um, which was uh, another 6,000 people who are unlikely to be founders. So we don't have a definitive set, but we created this entrepreneurial index, occupation index using LinkedIn data. And we looked at 624 occupations and we worked out how many occupations, what's the coincidence of 
founder and co-founder as a job title on LinkedIn with other occupations. And it turns out that some occupations have very low coincidence of those two job titles. So if you're a, if you, if you're a speaker or a, uh, a CEO or, you know, a CTO, then it's quite likely that you might also be a founder or a co-founder. Um, Founders and co-founders typically have exec roles within companies as well, and they often are associated with types of things like, um, you know, um, being a public speaker and so on. Um, whereas other roles, for example, like a cashier, for example, or um, many medical specialist roles, they're just not typically in the startup business. So by by getting a an, a sample of people who are unlikely to be founders, and then a, a sample of founders. We also delved into our previous study and we got successful employees. Um, the non-founders were employees who were successful in about 100 different occupations. So we've got these two different sets. We've got personality data we inferred from it for, for each of these. So there's about 10,000 people. Um, the inferences using natural language processing and the, the tweets they use. So they all these people, I should say, were on Twitter and they have to have a certain amount of activity on Twitter to before it, it's reliably, we can reliably predict their personalities. Once we do that, then we had, we had two sets of large groups of people, founders and non-founders, and we found that on personality alone, we could distinguish the two groups using machine learning with about 80 to 90% accuracy. So um, it's quite clear that entrepreneurs are not like other people um, or not like successful employees. There's kind of like they're a different type of category. Then we then we sort of took another step and we sort of said, well, are there, uh, is there one type of entrepreneur? You know, like is there an entrepreneur type in the way that there's a kind of a, a type for a tennis player, if you like, a kind of a set of characteristics that are associated with professional athletes and particular tennis players. Um, is there a kind of an entrepreneur type? It turns out there's not um, the six, as you, as you mentioned, like in the intro. So, um, and you, we clustered these using machine learning and a variety of techniques. Um, we use the Hopkins technique um, to understand whether or not there were natural clusters, you know, because you can cluster any any data. It's just how well does it cluster? And is, is there natural clusters, you know, that are self-evident from the... So we did a variety of tests and we found that it turns out, yes, the data does cluster and yes the optimum number of clusters is six and then when you then we started to look at we we, we looked at the sample a large sample of people from Crunchbase, about thirty-two thousand people um, we picked people that had raised funds and those that hadn't raised so combinations of six you know levels of success in this part of the study we're not looking at um, success directly we're just interested in what are the types and we found by looking, by analysing their personality characteristics, there were these six types, as you mentioned. So yep. um, we use the acronym FOLD to remember, but it's fighters, observers, designers, leaders, experts, and accomplishers, each of which has different sort of characteristics. But probably for listeners, the most... Um, easily understood thing is that these uh, correlate to the well-known sort of idea in startup, the startup world of the hipster hacker and hustler, um, which is sort of this idea, you know, that's been around uh, that they're the sort of three types of people that you need to start a company. And it turns out 
um, that there's one hipster type among these. Um, that's the um, um, and there's a combination of a, a type. There's a few different types of hackers and yeah. hustlers. So, yeah. So tell me then, um, as as you've mentioned, uh, and and as as we touched on in your bio at the beginning, um, you not only have uh, an entrepreneurial bent currently, but a, a strong history of entrepreneurship throughout your career. Um, mm -hmm. While you're putting this together, surely um, something jumped out at you and said, "Oh, Paul, this is this is who you are," or at least, uh, or or maybe the worst, I'm none of these things, so maybe I should be an employee. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, this is a good question. Like, yeah, I did have thought this myself, and I think that I'm probably the hipster in the in the. I mean, I'm I'm sort of playing the hustler, but I'm I'm probably the hipster. So I'm sort of like a expert on engineer. I mean, I, I I feel very fortunate to have found data science. You know, rather late in my life, I think that this is really something that I resonate with and something that is really you know exciting to me and and this kind of computational social science research we've been doing in a variety of areas is really aligned i can tell with my um you know my outlook um so yeah i, I fortunately am one of the types i think so um probably the the hipster slash hustler uh, and my co-founder is definitely a, a um, hacker, okay. so that's that's good. Good pairing. <laughs> yeah. So, so something you mentioned a little bit earlier, which I want to dive into a little bit more. Actually, there's a few. There's a few different directions for mm. us here. One of them, though, mm. is um, is this distinction between um, what makes a highly successful or successful employee and what makes a successful founder. So, of course, one of the famous quotes, I, I believe, it's actually from Dr. Seuss. Um, is that um, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live the rest of its life um, thinking it's stupid or something along those lines. I've probably butchered it. Uh, but, mm. but this probably mm. applies very much to this dichotomy that you've identified here between the sec successful attributes or the attributes of a successful founder per this study mm. and your previous work mm. um, with successful employees and openness to experience, which is one of the big five, obviously, um, for those who aren't too familiar mm. with it. I believe from your study plays a really big role here for, on the entrepreneurial side. So could you dig a bit deeper into, into what you found there? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I love Dr. Zeus. So I'm so glad you, you introduced him there. So, um, and yeah, I think, so these features, the features that are associated with entrepreneurship um, in the first piece of work where we're distinguishing entrepreneurs to employees we found so we looked at this Luke at the facet level so there's the big five which is famously openness to experience conscientiousness extroversion agreeableness and sometimes called neuroticism mm -hmm. sometimes called emotional stability mm -hmm. um, they're, the, they're the five factors but within those there's a much more subtle level of sub factors so you can break those five into um, six subdomains or facets as they're known um, and you get a much more high resolution version of personality um, and that's what we used for this study so um, so within openness for example we found that the facet of adventurousness 
was interestingly and not surprisingly, perhaps the most significant in distinguishing entrepreneurs from employees. The thing I found fascinating about this is too, I was reflecting on, you know, the behavior of some of the most high profile and well-known entrepreneurs like Richard Branson. And in Australia, you know, the co-founders um, of Canva, uh, Melanie, um, who are into kite surfing, you know, and, and many other entrepreneurs are into um, cave diving and climbing. And, you know, these sort of, a, one of my colleagues um, is into um, race, racing, motor racing. And mm. um, so it's I think stadium. this idea of adventurousness, um, exactly, yeah. And I, I was, I, I watched this uh, documentary of Shackleton, who I'm fascinated with, you know, the um, Irish, um, trans Antarctic adventurer from a century ago mm. um, who led the um, famous adventure that went wrong, but he managed to incredibly save the lives of everybody in the crew. Um, and it struck me that, that um, you know, I think a lot of those types of personalities were the entrepreneurs of their day, you know, those adventurers. And so, yeah, a high amount of adventurousness. But what it means in a literal sense is also a preference for novelty over... Um, so people who don't like doing the same thing. You know, there's some people who actually thrive on um, routine and predictability. And and you see this in tennis, you know. So you, you to be a great athlete in most fields, you need to be willing to put in the hours and practice, you know, and, and put in... Um, and do things repetitively and continue to learn and improve and exercise that, whatever those muscles are. But in entrepreneurship, it's almost the opposite, you know, where you sort of say, I'm not willing to do that thing again. I just want to do something different today. So, um, yeah, so that's one of the uh, one of the facets that's key. Another one is agreeableness, the feature, of, the facet of cooperation. Again, not surprising. Mm -hmm. Um Another, another facet within agreeableness, low modesty. So that could be seen as confidence. Um, and also um, uh, employees, on the other hand, have much lower levels of activity. Right. And they're not, they don't run, run on such a fast clock um, and so on. So there's a variety of different um, features. I think one of the interesting things too is that we found um, some of these things, and this is what I guess we'll get to later, are important in combination. And this is one of the other findings, I guess, that you know that it's not just simply there being one type of. And I think this is where the hacker, hustler, hipster idea sort of comes to the fore. And it comes back to I was thinking the other day. You know, there's a philosopher Schopenhauer, who I think had this theory of relationships, romantic relationships. People choose their partners based on the kind of the sum is greater than the whole. And that his theory, I believe, was that people choose, do choose to some extent opposites. I think there's, you know, there's, there's a few different things happen in this space, but um, often when people do choose complementary attributes you know there's an understanding a, a, a sort of innate understanding that together you're going to be stronger because you you're kind of backing each other up and once we came across this i realized that the hacker and the hustler in particular 
are almost opposite in many features and facets. You know, not, not understandably, hackers are introverted and hustlers are, uh, you know, by their nature extroverted. Mm. But they all, but it's more, it's it's much more subtle than that. And there are a lot, there are a lot of things, a lot of ways in which they complement each other, and so together they're much stronger. So, so, so that, that's interesting. There are two things now that, that I want to dive in with you on, right? So one is I'll, I'll kick off with novelty. So novelty, when I saw your findings here, really fascinated me because I thought to myself, well, um, you know, like there were some things I certainly very much identified with. Um, you know, I, I started my first company in my mid-20s as an example. Um, so, you know, there were certainly some attributes there that I was like, oh, you know, I can see the, the contrast between um, states of employment versus states in entrepreneurship and, and those sorts of things. But novelty, one thing that um, I'm, I'm sure uh, a lot of entrepreneurs say listening right now would be thinking is the um the whole grind mindset that you know work chipping away you know over and over and over again which kind of sounds a little bit similar to to what you're saying with the tennis players or any professional sports person versus this um almost adhd style um i'm looking for new things and variety and and all those sorts of things and i've worked on that now so it's time to move on and work on something different is there a bit of a paradox there between um, having the 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 psychological characteristics, say, of always looking for new things, and and the maybe the personalization of that being, or personification, I should say, of that being Richard Branson, um, versus the grinder, the person churning away and chipping away and being persistent and eventually building something that everyone said wouldn't be successful. Like, how do those two things kind of play with each other? Does that speak to the archetypes, as an example? Yes, yes, yes. No, I think you're, you, it's a really good question. So I think persistence is related to conscientiousness mm. and and that is certainly a key feature, particularly with some types of hustlers. So there's, there's um, one, of the, one of the types of hustlers, um, which is, a sort of a there's a there's kind of a fascinating aside which I we we discovered that one of the types of hustlers um, known as accomplishers we call them accomplishers um, have very little um, anger or anxiety and this is kind of like just kind of a bit of a side story but um, they get things done and they don't. Um, they don't complain about things or stress about things. They have very low, low kind of, you know, most of us in this world, unfortunately, um, have some degree of anxiety or anger. You know, mm. I mean, we all have varying, varying degrees of mental issues, basically. And that, that shows up in this personality kind of data. You know, it's one of the five features is this, this kind of... The um, neuroticism side? Emotion. Exactly. exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but... Just as an aside, interesting aside, we found that one of our startup founder types has is blessed by almost having almost zero, um, you know, almost complete emotional stability, which is unlike most people in the world. So <laughs> that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, so, so, and they have high degree of persistence and conscientiousness, I think, as well. Um, so. Uh, Coming back to the the main question, though, I think the apparent paradox of persistence and variety. I think you can have both because my understanding is that 
the ideal startup, especially in the early stages, is you do the things that don't scale. Um, so you are there's that persistence, but you're running different experiments every day. So you're kind of changing the experiment all the time, um, but you've got a long a longer goal in mind. You know, so I think there's that kind of diversity within the within the kind of grand challenge that's my mm. understanding of the ideal sort of stage almost like what people say about an early stage startup that uh every day you wake up not knowing exactly how your day is going to play out um a, a good friend of mine who's been a very successful entrepreneur uh always said um he never wanted to live a life where he knew how much he was going to be making by the end of the year <laughs> Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's interesting. And I think that's part of the attraction too. the variable sort of the variable upside. Yeah, absolutely. So the other direction now, um, like that we've zoomed into this novelty conversation and some of the individual attributes is, is what you were hinting on a little earlier, which is team dynamics, groups, what are the good combinations, complementary skills, things like this. Now, obviously, um, the typical sort of theory would be that um, six co-founders is, is probably quite a crowd. Um, so probably quite uncommon for every one of these um, categories uh, to, to be in every successful founding team. What do good combinations look like? What, what are some of the key insights from the paper um, in, with respect to teams? Yeah, so I think your point about, firstly, that the, the number of founders matter. Um, and I think this is also known by a lot of venture capitalists, investors in startups. Um, more, more founders is good and more founders raise more money and have more chances of success. So multi-founder companies are good. And our theory with that is that beyond just the advantage of having a greater network, and so that means that your product is more likely to be successful and you're more likely to have greater access to capital, um, by virtue of having a larger team, you are going to have a larger personality footprint by definition. Um, doesn't matter who your founders are, it just means you're going to have more perspectives and more takes on the world. And so I think that the larger teams are better. There's obviously a trade-off between, um, you know, what what's workable and what's, you know, like once it gets beyond three, I can imagine it, you know, the logistics of it become more difficult. Um, but we have looked at various combinations of teams. So we looked at um, duo founded um, combinations of personalities as well as trio founded combinations. Uh, and we found firstly that, that you know, the, the um, personality diversity, if you like, of the sum of those, some of those um, founders meant that they were um, much more likely to succeed. Um, by the way, I should say that in this last piece of, so we're now looking at the last piece of the paper, we did some really fantastic uh, multifactorial analysis. So um, our colleagues at Oxford, um, Fabian Braceman and Fabian Stephanie did some brilliant work around looking at how do these, um, how does these, uh, how do these factors and features such as personality compare with other other known influences on startup success. Um, and so, yeah, so firstly, I guess the diversity matters, but then particular combinations um, are more successful than others. So um, two leaders and a developer, uh, we found to be 12 times more likely than other combinations. Um, two developers and an operator, 
an engineer, a leader, and a developer. So that you can see, um, people can dig into the paper and have a look at the detail themselves. But some of these combinations were up to ten times more likely to be successful. These trio founded um, companies. And what's interesting here is one of these is the hacker, hipster, hustler, literally, and the other two have a combination of a hustler and a hacker. Um, so this idea of having um, diverse teams with these different types of people, I think, yeah, provides much, much greater chances of success. And we went on to look at how that compares to other other factors, as I said. So we looked at um, where the startups are based, not surprisingly, where you're based makes a difference. If you're in California, um, you're more likely to be successful um, versus other, you know, other parts of the world. Also, what industry you're in matters. You know, some startups are more successful than others, and also how long you've been around. You know, so um, in we we adopted what's known as the Bonaventura um, definition of success. So um, it's a fairly strict definition of success because I guess the question many listeners might have is, well, how do you define success? What's mm. a successful startup? Yeah. Um, in this case, we used. Um, have you have you IPO'd? So has you had a major liquidity event? Have you been acquired? Um, has there been a trade sale, or have you acquired another company yourself? So one of those three events, um, and I think by most people's definition, they would consider. We did look at um, fundraising metrics of success, but they can you can raise money and still not necessarily be successful. And I think the these major liquidity event are better measures of success. And so I guess taking all these other factors into consideration, these other firm level factors like where you're based, what industry you are and how long you've been around, we found that um, the combinations of personality uh, within the startup at the beginning were much more um, significant and had a much greater mm. impact on success. Yeah, that's actually, that's a really interesting kind of point to zoom into. So you've got these three kind of categorizations, if you put it, of, of your analysis, the firm level, the founder level, and, and the founder group, right? And uh, Yes, that's right. And so and so essentially, uh, you can be as, as um, close to the center of Silicon Valley as you like, but if you're, if you're the wrong team, it do, it's not going to matter. Absolutely. Yeah. Team trumps everything. I mean, that's my sense. And I think I had a, I had a sense of this. I mean, my the starting point, we've called this the ensemble theory of startups because it takes into account lots of different perspectives. Um, but I, I would debt of gratitude to a talk I saw many years ago by an Australian tech entrepreneur and investor, Lenny Mayo, who said basically that investors see the world in three different ways. And I've been quoting this, you know, ever since. So I think, and it really lit a, lit a light bulb for me because it, I've been banging my head up against the wall previously with investors, you know, for being an entrepreneur, pitching to them and sort of saying, especially in Australia, I think Australia has a particular interest around what I'd call the better, better mousetrap view of the world, the better mousetrap startup. And that's very product focused. So you've got to make the best product in the world. Doesn't matter who the team is. Doesn't really matter what the industry is. If you come up with the best product, it's going to. And, um, and I think through historical circumstances, the fact that we invented Wi-Fi and the fact that we monetize that through suing other companies, and you know that was kind of seen as a great triumph. Um, but there wasn't any great 
companies unfortunately built out of that. It was more a case of, you know, this was a great mousetrap that was invented here and then was, you know, um, obviously the world has benefited enormously from that invention. But um, from a startup sense, you know, it was kind of like, it's one way to do things is to be extremely protect protective about IP. And, you know, I think um, there's understandable reasons for that in, in drug discovery. You know, there's a lot of this sort of attitude where it's all about the IP, don't care about the team so much. Um, even the industry can come and go, you know, is if we've got the pattern and we've got the kind of the key drug. Then. So that's the mousetrap view of the world. The other view of the world is the kind of the markets view of the world, which is more like the financial markets, which is all boats rise on the same tide. Mm. Today it's fintech, you know, tomorrow it's AI, you know, generative AI, almost. you know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and you know, if it's some theme of yesterday, we're not interested. And to some extent, you know, we're not even, we don't even believe in individual companies or founders or anything. We just believe in the market. So it's almost like an index fund type view of the world. Mm. And I think to some extent, a lot of VCs, Certainly movie producers work this way. There is this kind of herd mentality where things move in cycles and you have to have the movie about this or you have to have the, you know, your portfolio needs to include this. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to go exactly. mad if I see another superhero movie ad. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, now, uh, and then there's a third view of the world, which is, I guess, that it's about the people, you know, and I think, you know, arguably there's quite a few people in the the top end of the VC business, I think, where they can afford to be selective, where they sort of say, well, you know, you may have a great idea today, but, you know, it may not work or, you know, or you may, you may be in a hot market now, but it might go cold or, but if you've got a good team, you'll be able to pivot. You know, this idea is the pivots come around in the last few years and, you know, with without spending too much money, if, you were, if you're sort of using a lean sort of agile approach, as long as you've got the right team together, you know, it's like the rolling stones, model of startups you know keep the band together and the rest will take care of itself um and and i think to some extent with a caveat and the caveat would be you know informed by this new research if you have the right team then i think you are in a really good position you know and i think there is that opportunity to do some amazing things and uh, I, I guess you, you used a couple of examples in the paper, one of them actually being one of your data sources, Twitter. So um, something that I actually wasn't aware of is that um, that Twitter made a few of these pivots and, and you know, it kind of reinforced the view that you've just expressed now. Um, what do you, do you remember off the top of your head what that pivot was? I, um, I, I can't cast my mind back that far. Or was that one of your co-authors, um, that section? <laughs> no, 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 that was me. Um, yeah. yeah, so... Um... Twitter, yeah, Twitter was my understanding, um, and this is hearsay, so, but it is in the literature. So my understanding is that they were looking for, and they'd run out of ideas. Their mm. initial ideas had, hadn't worked. Mm. Um, they'd had some funding and they were, and someone said, well, what about this idea of the micro, um, you know, the, the, the kind of, um, this idea of tweets, you know, this idea of micro-social posts, mm. micro-posts. Little sort of headlines, idea. the headlines and of life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, a status update. And I think it was it was sort of like a bottom drawer idea that, that was kind of a last-minute thing. And it certainly wasn't the first thing. And they, they were kind of, they, they were going for a while. And, and it was one of those things where, yeah, it's, uh, and I think there are, 
I think even even with Google, I mean, Google's success, they had they had the kind of a way of indexing the web, which was arguably better than others. There was a lot of competition around that time, as you probably know, the early days of the web and the early days of search. Um, mm. But yeah, Ask Jeeves and one of the key, exactly, yeah, yeah, there was Lycos, Excite, LookSmart, um, Yahoo, obviously in there, still mm. in a different sort of model and so on. Mm. And um, the interesting thing was is I think the, the great insight was keeping the search uh, results and then monetizing that. And I think initially they threw them out. They didn't even, didn't even keep them. They were just delivering search results and not keeping the demand. But the demand information turned out to be the key to the, you know, the commercialization of it and the idea of matching demand to, to um, potential advertisers because it's a kind of like a – yeah, so I think some of these things don't necessarily appear immediately, and I think you can certainly, with a good team, you know, go on to to much greater success. Yeah, keep some goals. So if I uh, on the topic of Twitter, um, I had a little question here for you that I that I wanted to make sure I got in there, um, and it's around method. Um, so um, Twitter, say like my Twitter feed, and you made a point about this a little bit before. My Twitter feed would have been um, hopeless for for your sampling. I would have been ruled out as a data point because it's just a feed um, resharing. I've got about thirty followers or something like that, and it's just a feed resharing uh, articles that I've um, written and all those sorts of things. So not, I imagine, not too much personality insight there, um, uh, other than perhaps a lack of modesty. <laughs> but. Um, so how did you guys, uh, did, did you come across the challenge at all um, when you were scraping this data or when you were collecting the data where people were, say, putting on a, a public persona or a online persona that may not necessarily reflect their the way that they work and, and those sorts of things? Did, did that issue come up? If so, um, was there ways of working around it? Is it just working with large samples of data, which kind of controls for, for things like that? How did you go about that? Yes. Yeah, you do need a, a minimum amount of, you need about 100 words, ideally 400 words minimum. Mm. Um, and the question about authenticity and about, um, you know, the way in which we project ourselves, I think um, other research has shown that it is accurate. I mean, I, mean, I think that my sense is that on social media, we show up, it's a bit like the job um interview dressing you know you dress for the job that you want to have not necessarily the job you have mm. and i think on social media people do there is a bit of projection but it's a it's a it's a more idealized version of oneself usually and um the inference um sees through that and is is accurate um mikhail kaczynski's work has shown that social media inference um is more accurate than peers and friends um, mm. es estimates of people's personality um, and similar to that of a spouse. Um, so it's pretty accurate. Um, and there are sort of some studies that kind of reference, you know, the accuracy of this sort of material. And so, and then I think at scale, both in terms of the scale of the individual, you know, having a sufficient corpus to be valid but then also in terms of the number of individuals that we kind of looked at. So in this study, we looked at about 30,000 um, founders from around the world um, and their success. And 
and and uh, and thirty features on each, you know, in terms of their inferred personalities. So. So what happens then, um, say for somebody listening right now, um, highly conscientious worker, you know, you've identified conscientiousness as a good marker for both a good employee and a good founder. Um, high levels of conscientiousness mm. perhaps aren't as adventurous um, as, as the outliers who may be classified as founders. Um, they want to become a founder, but they, they don't necessarily directly identify with one of these six categories. Um, as, a, as an entrepreneur yourself, uh, what, what, what would you say to them? Um, well, I, I think the thing is that I'd never say that you couldn't be a founder. I think anyone who, you know, wants to be a founder can, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, I love it. I think it's a, it's a fantastic occupation, um, adventure. Um, but I think understanding more about where you fit in and what sort of skills, uh, what sort of uh, outlook you have or what your preferred way of engaging with the world is can be really valuable. So some sort of insights about your um, who you are really is ultimately, you know, what it, what it boils down to it, it can help in how effectively you might, say, for example, choose co-founders or collaborate with others hmm. who might complement your um strengths or you you might complement their strengths um or just being aware of strengths and weaknesses you know i think is kind of really valuable to try and mm. understand um what sort of things you might like to focus on even what industry i mean different different types of one of the things we found for example also um of the six types um there are different types of success and the Bonaventura definition of an IPO, an acquisition or a be acquired is, um, is very much the textbook VC's best outcome, which is basically a trade mm, sale. Most, most yeah. VCs are looking for, you know, a trade sale within seven to 10 years. That's their sort of investment horizon usually. Mm. Um, and, and that's the that's the ideal outcome for for a VC, but but you know for a very small number of companies and a very small number of founders, they don't want that. You know the Elon Musks, the Bill Gates, and the Jeff Bezos of this world, they they, they want to build a company and Atlassian, Canva, they're doing this kind of like multi. You know they want to um, build a lifetime company um, and even a multi generational company and. Um, and we have seen that there, you know, some of the zero and two in particular, these um, accomplishers and leaders are associated with these longer term successes, whereas, you know, some other um, defiders are more associated with, you know, this success outcome that, so again, that, that might be, you might be more suited to one or the other. Mm. I mean, sometimes investors will step in and say, you know, it's time for a new as an enterprise CEO to take the reins. You know that that's been an yeah. old-fashioned sort of view. Mm. Mm. 
Mm. And, and obviously some exceptions there, which you've mentioned, but um, yeah, that, that's a very interesting point. And, and that's something that certainly stood out to me was that, yeah, you've got kind of like your, you know, the way that I've often framed it, um, which I don't think is language that you had in the paper, not that I saw. Um, if I was to reduce it even further back from six would be your kind of wartime leaders and your peacetime leaders. You know, Winston Churchill, um, after the Second World War, had a bit of trouble maintaining his popularity because he was, you know, there as a firefighter. He was there, you know, um, you know, bringing people together yeah. against a common enemy, say. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a really good point. And we've got a plan for a follow-up study called CEO of the Hour, um, which is looking at CEOs in this context and the idea of, you know, are there different types of CEOs that are suited to diff the wartime CEO equivalent, you know, the, re the turnaround CEO um, and so on. And... Um, and definitely, I think that that's that's definitely true. That there's, um, and I think the other thing we found is that diversity really matters on your team as the company scales massively. So um, we looked at what we call monotype or multi-type um, founder companies. So in other words, they may have multiple founders, but sometimes they're the same same type of person you know you might have three hackers or mm. two hackers mm. like attracting um, like or two hustlers two hustlers or you know mm. and, on, yeah, and so on so yeah um so the multi-type um the probability of a diverse founder company is five times as likely to raise a billion dollars than a um than a monotype um founder company and you really see this this is using the um, empirical um, distribution so it's actually using the actual distributions of money raised um, and so it's not predicted it's actually it's actual and um, you really see the difference as you get out to that that far end of the um, the raising so I, I mean I see that as being it's the it's the unicorn stage. The unicorn stage really does require that, you know, that um, diverse. Mm. And you, and I think that's when you know leadership teams really matter. That you you now have a very large organisation with a lot of employees and a lot of different moving parts. Yeah, and I, I guess on that theme, then that's a really convenient segue to a, a point that you make um, towards the back of the paper or before the references around. Um, the changing nature of, so, you know, obviously this paper focused completely on temperamental diversity, say, um, or, you know, some people may say, refer to it as cognitive diversity or something like that, um, personality diversity. Mm. But you also make a really interesting mm. point about um, the changing nature of female representation among startups and those that have been able to raise mm. capital um, and these changing social values, say, and what that might mean about what attributes are more valued by those who are making the powerful decisions on what entrepreneurs are founded and, and all those sorts of things. So how do you see that potentially changing over time as, I mean, in an ideal world where we have, you know, more equitable access to, um, to successful um, companies being founded and, and those sorts of things? Yeah, well, I think um, we did look at some gender stuff and we found that um, there were some um, differences and disadvantages, you know, historically speaking, there's been less, I think that the female founders have been 
smaller in number and have had difficulty raising capital, you know, I think that there's been a lot of kind of social discrimination against women um, in the startup business. So I think it's quite difficult to separate that from any um, particular abilities or, you know, different abilities that they might bring to the table. But I think the general conclusion is that diversity is the key to success, you know, and I think personality diversity is the key we've shown is unequivocally the key to success. And clearly, you know, if you have um, gender diversity as part of that, so too is um, ethnic diversity and, you know, uh, uh, and personality is another part of that, you know. So mm. there's another study um, we cite um, that looked at academic impact and diversity on a range of scales. So, and also the extent makes a difference. So this was another study that used a very large sample of authors. So they looked at things like age diversity, you know, is a team with varying age authors, do they have more impact? Um, institutional diversity, do, do, or, you know, papers that are, you know, working with cross boundaries and geographies, is that better? Um, gender diversity and ethnic diversity and they found to be all beneficial basically that, that any diversity is better than none right um, there is a hierarchy um, about and I suspect they didn't do personality but I think that in some cases a lot of these things are proxies for personality too mm. so I think that gender can be um, so too can ethnicity and so too can you know um, nationality you know i think there's there are personalities associated with different um mm. well conveniently conveniently we are uh, of the same um culture say um yes and yes. and one very unique i wouldn't say very unique but one um one characteristic beyond the big five and another um i guess another framework that's used with respect to culture more so necessarily than individuals is um, something from Gert Hofstede referred to as cultural dimensions, and uh, and power distance as an example, which is um, your your inclination to be subservient, to to respect your elders, to be hierarchical, say, or respect your superiors. Uh, in in the place in the aisle that we are from um, is quite low, very low power distance, right? People are quite quick to talk mm. back to authority and those sorts of things, and uh, it's yeah, interesting how how that map might also compare to. You know other cultures and and how that plays out for both um, being a successful worker, uh, being a successful entrepreneur, or any other endeavor. Yeah, yeah. As our former prime minister Malcolm Turnbull said, the non-deferential nature of Australian character is certainly an advantage, I think, in being an entrepreneur. And um, and the re I think I I do think about that, and I. We, we have done another, um, we've got another working paper, which looks at, um, which looks at um, a very large sample of people um, not using personality inference, but it's actually using a large scale uh, personality um, test, which was done over a number of decades and has, has a global sample of people, about 130,000 people. And we've looked at um, we've looked at that on a country by country basis, and um, to see 
what the ratio knows using our kind of understanding from this paper is and there's it's very asymmetric there are there are um, some countries that have high degree of entrepreneurial type personalities and I guess there's lots of questions this raises um, sometimes and and they do correlate to what one imagines is the countries that have high incidence of startups and affinity and you know culture of startups so for example the Netherlands Israel uh, have a high percentage of people but um, there's also a lot of countries that are unknown at the moment for startups like Iran for example um, mm. and well unknown to the West anyway I yeah it should show my ignorance but um, <laughs> And um, we're certainly not in the in the kind of Anglosphere VC funding world. They're not um, a big player yet. Um, but one of the things um, that struck me was uh, in the Anglosphere, the the Irish were the high had the highest degree of um, you know entrepreneurial personalities, and perhaps that's not surprising given given the. Uh, you know the interest in startups in in Dublin and the mm. tech sector generally, and and also the non-differential nature of Irish culture as well. Well, yeah, I was going to say even even going back. Um, I mean, obviously Ireland is a country um, with a very rich and intense history. I was there very recently um, with my mother because she uh, her heritage is Irish, and so we took her to mm. where her family was from. And obviously, you know, there are some some pretty intense um, characteristics of Irish history. But also um, the way that people managed it, dealt with it, and the diaspora that then followed, probably shows that this is quite deeply embedded. This has been around, you know, perhaps in, in Irish culture for a long time. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I remember meeting a um, an innovation expert from Finland who was visiting um, as the the innovation expert for the Finnish government at the time. And we, 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 it was this public forum. It was sort of us. How do we learn from your experience? How does how does a nation become more innovative? You know, what are the what are the characteristics that we can? And his view was that it was born out of uh, a very terrible history, and that one you wouldn't necessarily want to repeat. Uh, but that you know, a lot of it has come out of um, difficult times and. Um, you know, a lot of fear and anxiety and, and um, second guessing and, you know, like a troubled, a troubled history with their neighbours. And, um, you know, I mean, they've, they've built underground cities, you know, as alternative backup plans, you know. For, um, so I think they tend to think things through, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. and think about possibilities and permutations quite a lot. And so it tend, they tend to be, I mean, I think there's more to it than that. I think that the, the Finns, from my experience, are hugely creative um, people, fascinating kind of people. But, um, but yeah, I think it's interesting. Some, sometimes these things are born out of um, historical necessity too, yeah. Mm, yeah, and then in, embedded. Look, um, mm. we've, we've reached an hour and, uh, and this has been, to me, an amazingly insightful conversation. I hope it is um, for those listening as well. Um, so the paper, again, The Science of Startups, The Impact of Founder Personalities on Company Success. I found it on LinkedIn because we're connected to each other. But 
for those who aren't connected to you on LinkedIn, where's where's the best place for them to to check that out and and follow the rest of your work? It's available as a preprint on the Cornell Archive. If you go Google um, the title, you'll it'll come up there. Mm-hmm. It's also on the Social Science Research Network as a working paper there too. So you can download freely download a PDF of a full PDF of the paper now. Great, and uh, and following you, um, I know you're on Twitter, right? You're quite you're more active than me, I think. On Twitter, is that the best place to find you? I'm on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Yeah. Great, great. Well, Alex McCarthy on Twitter. Great. Paul, Paul X. McCarthy, thank you very much. Fantastic conversation. Fantastic. Thanks for having me, Luke.